as I began to re revisit some of the stories, were kind of familiar to me, but some of the stories were not familiar. But as I heard these stories again and again from these elderly people who are now in the 80s and 90s, I had in mind that I was on the Antiques Roadshow and that what I was hearing were these jewels, mm. were these precious antiques that had not been aired for many, many years. They'd been stored away in cupboards in people's minds and never really had a platform and I was, going to, I was going to dust them down and reveal them to the reading public. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today on the show, we're really excited to be welcoming Colin Grant uh, to the studio. Colin is the author of a new book called Homecoming. Uh, it draws on over 100 first-hand interviews, archival records and memoirs by women and men who came to Britain from the West Indies between late 1940s and the early 1960s. We hear from nurses in Manchester, bus drivers in Bristol, seamstresses in Birmingham, teachers in Croydon, dockers in Cardiff, interracial lovers in High Wycombe and the Carnival Queens in Leeds. 70 years after the arrival of ships such as the Windrush, Colin Grant very, very skillfully draws all these stories together in these incredible uh, generation of pioneers share their lives. I wanted to hear a little bit from Colin about how one goes about a huge project like that and how he found uh, the experience of writing Homecoming. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vintage Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Out of, out of ten, how would you say you are? I'd say a steady eight. Oh, that's not bad, it's not bad. Okay, we've caught, we've caught you on a good one. Um, so Homecoming is such an incredible book and it's already having um, an incredible impact. Um, I I really enjoyed hearing all the different things and actually I listened to the audiobook and I know that a lot of our listeners love audiobooks because they're obviously listening to podcasts. So the audiobook was a really interesting experience to hear other voices as well. Um, tell us a little bit um, about your the kind of thing thinking behind the book when when the kind of first kind of concept came into your head and and what it was like in those first stages of planning a few years ago i wrote a memoir about growing up in luton with my jamaican parents called bagai at the wheel bagai was my father's nickname he's jamaican he had baggy eyes and all of his friends equally had these funny nicknames that defined them and they adhered to it whether they liked the name or not <laughs> so there was one man called shine who was bald like me Anxious, was very anxious. Tidy Boots was very fussy about his footwear. Clock had one arm longer than the other. And my favourite was a man they called Summerwear. And when Summerwear came to this country from Jamaica in 1959, he insisted on wearing light summer suits, tropical suits, no matter the weather, come hail or storm. And when I thought about writing this book, I asked my mum whatever became of Summerwear. And she said, well, he caught a cold and died within a few months. And I was chuffed by that... Uh, straight way in which she spoke. She said it in a very matter-of-fact way. Mm. It had an edge to it, but also it was quite a funny. And I remember that when I was growing up in Luton in the 60s, all the people were really, really funny. They were like, in my mind, cast members of Guys and Dolls, you know, the Damon Runyon yeah, stories. And they were all larger-than-life figures. We had no television until 1972, but they were our television and when I finished that book, Bad Guy at the Wheel, about second, seven years ago now, uh, I always wanted to um, continue it. And in a way, the beginning of Homecoming was a continuation of that story. But equally, there were books that I read as a young man about Caribbean people in this country, especially a book 
by Sam Selvon called The Lonely Londoners, mm. which is a book about a man called Moses, who is the kind of meter and greeter. It's a Caribbean man. He goes down to uh, Waterloo Station or Paddington and greets these Caribbean pioneers as they come off the boat train. And equally, they have um, wonderful characters with wonderful names. There's a character called Sir Galahad, who's rather like my character, Summerware. And when I finished that book, I wondered to myself, well, what would what would have become of those people from the 1950s and 60s if they were still alive today? Um, and what were their stories? What was the story of their great pioneering migration to Britain? And although there have been books about that, I don't think anyone's really interrogated the individual stories. And what you get with this book, which is a kind of oral history, is a kind of an accumulation of similar stories. And by that accumulation, you realise that there is a bigger truth. Because sometimes when you hear stories, you think, well, that's just a one-off. Mm. When you hear it again and again and again, you realise that everybody was having these experiences. And I wanted to, to have that kind of chorus almost uh, in the book there's a kind of chorus line that goes right the way through yeah. um, but also that kind of gives you some of the the shape and the the contours of their lives from the 1960s to the present day and the people that you chose to interview for the book you, you say uh, in the introduction that you you kind of chose intentionally to interview more women than men because you know those stories aren't represented and 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 also more Guyanese people than Jamaican tell us a little absolutely. bit about those absolutely so my parents are Jamaican mm-hmm. and three quarters of the migrants who came from the Caribbean were Jamaican but I know that Jamaicans take up too much room <laughs> in the culture they make too much noise they have too great an opinion of themselves and they're overrepresented in our culture in terms of books, films, music. And sometimes they've kind of eclipsed some of the other islanders. So I was very keen to redress that. So, in fact, I interviewed more people from Guyana mm. or St. Kitts. And I was interested to find out why people ended up in certain parts of the country. So if you're from St. Kitts, you end up in Leeds. If you're from St. Vincent, you end up in High Wycombe. If you're from Trinidad, you end up in Northampton. Um, and I think people went to these areas because they were pe- people who were already there who were friends and mm. associates. Uh, but equally, I was very keen to complicate the story because many of us will have seen those photographs of the Windrush generation, the Windrush people coming off that ship in 1948. And they're kind of iconic now, these men in fedoras and zoot suits. But you hardly ever see any women in those photographs. But on that ship, it's often said, and from the beginning of that story, that narrative was that there were 500 Jamaican men. That's not true. There were other islanders on that ship. And there were 200 women on the ship, including a woman called Mona Baptiste, this wonderful jazz singer. So I wanted to tell their stories, but also I wanted to use them to complicate the stories because the women were actually much more generous with their anecdotes they're much more prepared to interrogate the interior lives and they'd lived longer. But also, in all honesty, when I went to interview them, they were prepared to feed me. Yeah, I remember you saying that and being like, you played this game well. I think well, that's... I would go and interview these people for two or three hours and the men wouldn't think to feed me and I'd yeah. be on the floor you know, gasping <laughs> for water or a little bit of bread, but the women would feed me straight away. Yeah. And actually, what was interesting to me as I began to re- revisit some of the stories, which were kind of familiar to me, but some of the stories were not familiar. But as I heard these stories again and again from these elderly people who are now in the 80s and 90s, I had in mind that I was on the Antiques Roadshow and that what I was hearing were these jewels. 
mm. were these precious antiques that had not been aired for many, many years. They'd been stored away in cupboards in people's minds. I never really had a platform, and I was going to, I was going to dust them down and reveal them to the reading public. Because to me, they are these wonderful, rich, funny, sad, moving, polemical sometimes, uh, philosophical stories that give a real sense of the panoply of, 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 of Caribbean life in this country. Because I think sometimes we have a very reduced idea about the Caribbean presence, in all honesty, mm. if, you, if you look in terms of the archive in, in film and television and news, it's pretty negative. Mm. And right from the word go, it was pretty negative. People talk about the hostile environment that Theresa May introduced in 2012. But in not my research, <laughs> it was not a new invention. It was there from the very mm. beginning. And I, as well as interviewing a lot of these people who are in their 80s and 90s, I also looked at some of the archive. There's some wonderful archive in the British Library, in the BBC, sound archives in the BBC. People had their own uh, archives, like the DJ Don Letts had done lots of interviews 20 years ago. He allowed me to use his archive. But I also, I went to my hometown is Brighton, and I went to uh, Sussex University, where the Mass Observation Archive is held. And in 1939, mass observation, which is a sort of socialist research tool, wanting to discover how people live. That was the whole idea of mass observation. How do working people live? Mm. You know, what do they do with their money? How do they use their spare time? Do they still go to church? Do they gamble? How do they make love? Mm. But in 1939, mass observation decided to do a survey about black people. What did people in this country think about so-called Negroes in 1939? And it wasn't very flattering. Mm. It was pretty obnoxious, really. Um, and I wanted to give a sense of what these Caribbean people were coming to, because in their minds, and I say this is true of almost everybody I spoke to, they were British. Mm. I interviewed my mum for the book. My mum's from Jamaica. And when she was growing up in Jamaica in the 1940s, she knew how to fold the Union flag. She could recite Keats, Shelley, Wordsworth, all the romantic poets by rote. She knew them all, didn't need any book to repeat these poems. And she told me that when she went to the cinema, the Rialto Cinema in Kingston in the 1940s, at the beginning of a screening of a film, people would stand up to sing the British National yeah. Anthem. <laughs> And at the end of the screening, people stand up to sing the British national anthem. And I interviewed a man from Guyana who told me that when he came to this country, he went to the cinema, and at the end of the film, he stood up and started to sing. And he was amazed that nobody else was standing. He was really perplexed by that. So I wanted to give a sense of why they felt British, but also what idea of Britain they were coming to. So if they had to if they had access to these archives from mass observation, they might have been a bit perturbed. But what was interesting also is that the British, sometimes they produced these booklets which they sent out to the Caribbean to give people an idea about what to expect. Um, so there's one booklet produced by the BBC called Going to Britain? Question mark. And it's a small pamphlet which gave them, gave this West Indian some idea about um, codes of behaviour. So, Lynette, if I was to say to you in 1940s as an English person and you're Caribbean, um, how do you do? What do you think you might answer? Very well, thank you. No, no. <laughs> no. You would say, how do you do? 
okay. And if, Linnea, you saw a group of people standing one behind the other in a line in a shop, that is a queue. And you're placing it in this queue, you're placing it in letter Z at the back of the queue. Because there wasn't much uh, adhesion, ad mm. adherence to queuing in the Caribbean. So these okay. little kind of vignettes were kind of interesting to me to kind of paint a picture about the, 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 the kind of rather ordered society and perhaps stultifying society that they were coming to. Yeah, and I, I think it's also important because I suppose it's not something that we see on the British curriculum for children. It's not something that they grow up learning about, and especially for white kids, it's something that I think they're really missing. Yes. Um, you, you growing up, you said that um, you you felt like you had to prepare a, a kind of a, a sentence to explain um, if people um, asked you about yes. your race, and you said British by birth, Jamaican by will and inclination, and Bagai wasn't <laughs> he wasn't on board with that. Tell us a little bit about yeah. then if that's evolved for you. Yeah, well, I thought that was rather clever little sentence. I, I devised to myself because I mm. thought so often I thought it was a rather, rather winning sentence <laughs> and if, it, if ever bad guy my father overheard me saying that because I, I would say it to friends mm. he would berate me he'd say stop talk tripe you're <laughs> born right here with a H yeah. you are English <laughs> I am British don't let the man take you for fool um, so he had a very strong notion that he was British mm. his passport bore the stamp right of abode, and he's very proud of that. And But I did have this ambivalence about what, what I was. I think a lot of people of my generation did because our parents were from the Caribbean and after a while you realise they weren't really welcome here mm. and there's always this sort of temporary state in which you live, this notion that you might go back. You mentioned in the, the about not unpacking <laughs> and Absolutely, the idea that your yeah. parents changing the wallpaper Absolutely, is an idea yeah. that you might actually stay. Well, yeah, because yeah, there really was always this mythic five-year plan. Mm. We'll stay here, and in Jamaican parlance, they say, you come and you work some money, which means you save and prosper, and in five years, you're going to go back. Mm. But five years becomes 10, 10 becomes 15, and before you know, one day, as we did, we woke up and we saw our parents changing the wallpaper and then you know you are here to stay. <laughs> so almost in respect of my parents, I say I'm British. Yeah. Uh, it came to me fairly late, though, because I remember when I was 19, I went to Jamaica by myself for the first time ever. I was very thrilled and excited about the prospect. And I had that phrase in my mind about being British by birth, but Jamaican by will and inclination. <laughs> and I always admired the way that uh, my Caribbean parents friends walked and my father had a lovely walk which is just faster than slow and it's very cool and I thought it's so cool to be a Caribbean person with that walk so I'm in Jamaica I'm 19 and I every morning I get up and I go to the market uh, in Kingston the capital and as I go to the market I'm, I pass this vendor every day and every day he shouts to me hey Englishman 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 and I kind of ignore him. And, and by the fifth day, I go up to him and I say, um, so what makes you think I'm English? And he says, well, you walk like an Englishman. <laughs> and I realised that I am English. I was born here. And actually, everything that has shaped me, apart from my parents, has been a 
product of being in England, in Britain. So in honour of my parents, I, you know, I, I, I fess up and say I'm British. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a very valid um, kind of observation you make as well is that, that you know, very recently we, we do associate the word Windrush with the word scandal. And mm. um, how, how did that impact the way you um, put the book together? Was there anything that kind of permeated into your process? Yes, well... Whilst I was compiling the book, because the book is a series of interviews, cleverly edited by, <laughs> cleverly by edited. me and B, mm-hmm. uh, B Hemmings, um, there are 120-odd people in the book. And whilst I was compiling the book, the Windrush scandal emerged. I mean, it mm-hmm. going on for some time, but it emerged through the stellar uh, journalism of Amelia Gentleman from, from The Guardian. But equally... As I was interviewing people, I was hearing similar kinds of stories about people being stuck, about people nervous about um, leaving because they hadn't sorted out their passport. Because people came here, and um, when I was growing up, anyway, you never had to show your passport. You never had to show any identification to anybody. And that was kind of British in a way, that you didn't believe in having to have a stamp to say who you were. Uh, but I've got a sense of uh, people who had relatives who were getting caught up in the scandal. Um, and equally, I was I was determined to go to Jamaica and to go to the Caribbean to talk to people who'd gone back because the book is trying to show a lifetime of a Caribbean person in this country. And in a way, when I was putting the book together, I had in mind um, the model of the Five Stages of Grief by a psychologist called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she says there are five stages of grief. There's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And when I talked to people, I could see that they'd gone through these five stages in their experience of being Caribbean in this country. And there was always this desire to go home to the Caribbean. And some people did. So I went to the Caribbean to interview some of these people for my final chapter. But whilst there, I came across people who had been caught up in the scandal. So they'd gone back for a funeral 10, 15 years ago. There'd been some question about their passport. Their passport would be removed from them, and they found themselves trapped Mm. in, in Jamaica. So I interviewed a few people like that who were waiting to see what was going to happen as the scandal unfolded. And the the government has woken up to the fact that there's been this great transgression and is trying to sort things out. Um, But they've been rather slow in the process and um, sometimes not coming clean quickly enough. And there's one man I spoke to, uh, who Ken Morgan, who they've offered, when I spoke to him, the government had offered him a visiting visa, a, a returning, sorry, the government had offered him a returning visa. And he very, very strongly said, well, I don't want a returning visa. I'm British. I want my British passport. Mm. I want it back. And if they don't want to give it to me, they can keep it. <laughs> and I love that spirit. They can keep it. That kind of uh, sense of their own personal worth, the sense mm. of their own integrity. That came through again and again. And their sense of there being decades of slights, we now call them microaggressions, sometimes they were macroaggressions. But what I admired about the people that I interviewed, that I interviewed, was that they strategized how to get around these difficulties. So, for instance, many people had difficulty finding um, finding work. Um, they'd get 
they'd see the advert for the job and they'd get to the place of work and the person giving out the job would say, oh, Mr. Bloggs, you just a little bit too late. That job's <laughs> just gone. If you'd only got here an hour ago. Mm, very convenient. Very convenient. And uh, one man said uh, about this process, which happened again and again and again, boy, the Englishman is the nicest man in the world when he's telling you no. <laughs> so I love their humour, but yeah. mostly what they did, they they took things on the chin, they moved on, they pulled up the collar on their coat and they walked on. But also they 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 were largely thrilled, initially anyway, to be here. If you can imagine Britain, England, London was the centre of the world for these people in the Caribbean. To come from the Caribbean to England was like coming from Glasgow to London. This, they felt they were part of the country. But also there was this great glamour attached to all things British. In Britain, the mark made in England was like a badge of value. But all these words have been you know, in the ether as they were growing up, like Oxford Circus. Imagine the thrill of being able to say, I walked to Oxford Circus. And again and again, these early pioneers, they might take photographs or have postcards made up and they would send them back home. And there's one man called Wallace Collins who went to Trafalgar Square. And at Trafalgar Square, a pigeon um, stood on his head and dropped something onto his head, shall we say. (laughs) And uh, he wrote back to his family, I went to Trafalgar Square, this pigeon did this. I am making history. (laughs) I am making history. I am at the centre of the universe. Uh, I wanted to capture that because... uh, I think sometimes we 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 reduce the Caribbean story, and in a way, I want to detach the word Windrush from the word scandal, mm. because there is a scandal. But mostly, I'd say this is a a celebratory story. Everybody saw their lives as triumphant. They didn't see their lives as being people who've been victimised. No one wants to be a victim. Yeah. Um. What were um. What was it like? Um trying to get these stories were they were they always very forthcoming with their oh. stories so they, like previously been quite private about that and you talk about this assumption that um uh, stories from the Windrush have, have not been noticed because people might not have volunteered them at first but again that that can you talk about how that can also be a kind of uh, inheritance of, of slavery and this idea that they don't want to be heard what was it like was it different for every person or mostly there was a lot yeah. of reticence yeah because i think people don't understand that 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 generation were very conservative with a small c mm. and uh, they didn't the phrase goes me don't like people chat my business mm. they don't like to share stories mm. sometimes the stories aren't very pleasant so they don't want to share them sometimes they're still embarrassed about them uh, sometimes they would be interviewed by me with their adult children present and those children hadn't heard the stories yeah. so they didn't really want to reveal the stories uh, but also what happens uh that with the passage of time, as you get older, this kind of veneer of respectability just sort of descends over you like a mist. And you forget what a naughty little rascal you were, or you don't want to, to be reminded, or you don't want to remind people. Um, so there was that difficulty. Mm-hmm. But I think partly because I'm of Jamaican ancestry, and I can, at a stretch, sound Caribbean. I know I don't sound very Caribbean now, but I can kind of mimic it. Yeah. And I, I know the phrases, maybe I can't say it so well, but I know the phrase and I know the culture. So I think they began to relax. And I think the children were more 
suspicious of me. Mm-hmm. When I say children, they're adults in their 30s mm-hmm. and 40s because they're more savvy about journalists or writers and what's going to be done with these stories. Yeah, yeah. It's a protective How will this story notion. be edited? How will I be revealed? Mm-hmm. Um, will I be revealed in a respectful way or not? The most important word in the Jamaican lexicon is respect. People want respect. Um, and so they are very guarded. And when you go to the Caribbean, you might get into a taxi drive, into a taxi, and you know, you're chatting with the taxi driver. You say, what's your, what's your name? He won't say, my name's Colin. He'll say, my name is Mr. Grant. <laughs> Everybody's Mr. Yeah. It's respect. Yeah. So that's very important to them. So I was um, having to disabuse them of the notion that I was going to exploit them. Mm-hmm. But I was prepared to sit with them and I know that I've been over the years to see a psychiatrist. Who hasn't been to see a psychiatrist? Come on. <laughs> Would now. recommend. Yeah. You go for your psychiatrist session. It's an hour-long session. And after 50 minutes, you get up to put your coat on. And that's when all the good stuff leaks out, <laughs> when you feel like the heat is off. Yeah. I think in journalism, they talk about the hand on the doorknob. As you're about to leave, they say, ah, oh, one last thing. Yeah, the floodgates. The floodgates <laughs> open. And so I was prepared to wait for that to happen, mm-hmm. almost like a kind of war of attrition. I'd yeah. wear them down. <laughs> I'm not leaving until I get some good stuff. No, so eventually they, they relaxed and mm. they were very revelatory, so much so that after a while, some of these adult children who were still present in the room, mm. they, they would sort of dab away the tears and they'd say, oh, I've never heard that story before or, or I've never heard that story in that amount of detail before. Mm. Because things were tough, and I think um, you do protect yourself, or you feel you protect yourself by not talking about things. So, for instance, uh, I spoke to this lovely lady, it's in the book, so I'm sure she doesn't mind me saying, uh, Waveney Bushell, 92, from Guyana, teacher when she came here, and one of the first uh, black uh, educational psychologists in this country. She told me about the fact that when she tried to find accommodation, you might have heard this phrase, it's almost like a cliche now. People are looking for accommodation. They see these signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, no gypsies. Mm-hmm. Um, so waving, we see these signs in the post office or in the shop or in people's windows time and time again. And she would ring up or write to them and say, by the way, I'm black. So let's not waste anybody's time here. If it's going to be a no, just tell me no now. Because she saw these signs so many times. And she tells me that till today, she can't climb the steps and knock on a door if she suspects the person opening the door is going to be white. Because the trauma of being rejected is buried in her soul. It's in her body. Mm. So I wanted to to, um, explore that. Because explore the kind of cliches. What does it mean Mm. to a person to have these, these slights, to have this dismissal time and time again so it took a while for for me to to persuade them that it was okay to speak like this sometimes they became too revelatory and I would say are you sure you want to share this Mm. and they did because although I've said that this veneer of respectability descends as you get closer to the end than you were at the beginning I think you think well why not you know I'll be yeah. Get them very soon. <laughs> yeah. I'll, 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 uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be in the ground very soon. So why not share these last little nuggets with yeah. people? That's yeah. the sense I got from them, and they were delighted. I must say, when some of them have heard the audio book, others have heard the BBC Book of the Week recordings yes, on Radio Four. On Radio yeah. Four, and when they hear themselves read out by uh, Bert Caesar or Colin Salmon or Donna Kroll or 
Michelle Greenwich. They're delighted. They're yeah. so delighted to, to, to know that their stories are reaching beyond their four walls. Yeah, and elevated. Yeah, definitely. yeah. They gave their story so generously, uh, and and so have you. I loved what you put of yourself in the book as well, and how you really carefully curated it, and and really showed us an, an, a new side that has, isn't often seen, but also done it with respect and and a real art. So thank you so much. Well, that, thank you. That res- that mm. word finally respect is so important to me yeah. because I was determined that I would retain their dignity, mm. and. And I had in mind, always had in my mind my father's walk as I was uh, compiling this book. Because my father, as I said, had this walk that was just faster than slow. And when I watched my father walk as a child again and again, it conjured to my mind a footballer on the losing side of the FA Cup final, mounting the steps to collect his loser's condolence medal. There was dignity in defeat. There's always dignity. And these people have dignity from the peel to the core. And I wanted to retain that. You definitely have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Vintage Podcast. I really hope you pick up the copy of Homecoming, Voices of the Windrush Generation. Thank you so much to its author, Colin Grant, for coming in. He was absolutely incredible to interview. Um, Do tweet us at Vintage Books or on Instagram at Vintage Books if you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode. Give us some reading recommendations that we can take home. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. (music) 